0: So um, we are in the middle of a series uh, called Being. It's really profound, really remarkable. Um, And the sort of the tagline of the series is essence over existence. And it's sort of, it might seem like a, a little bit of a wordy sort of, intellectual exercise and, and statement, but it's a profoundly true statement for every single one of us uh, because our essence, who we are, how we, how we, how we experience ourselves in the very innermost being really defines how we operate, how we think, how we behave, how we go about our lives. So this whole series is to sort of uh, hone our essence back to to the essence of the gospel to identifying with jesus to rooting our identity in the kingdom of god and how how we can get take that essence and and make sure that it defines our existence right so there's a, no area of existence no area of your life my life our family life our economic life our social our romantic life that is some somehow this misaligned outside of our essence of who we re- truly are so it's a powerful thing if you take the opportunity to really pay attention Um, And do something, you know, between sermons, between Sundays. So today, this is information. But as adults, the best way adults learn, all of us change, is 10% information, um, 20% um, accountability. is basically being around people who want to go in the same journey with you. And it's 70% doing, right? So that's why we try to make every single lesson practical, very much applicable to your life and transformational for you, Okay. But 70% is still on you. Does that make sense? So it's a humbling for me because I'm like 10%. That's nothing, right? Uh, like I don't really change anything. I'm more of a catalyst than anything else when I, when I speak. Um, now, today, basically, what we wanted to, what I wanted to cover is this. is We talked about God. We talked about our identity in God. It talk, we talked about what it means to be a Christian. And today, we're going to tackle sort of almost like one of those things that are fundamentally the, the responsible for the corrosion of people's faith once they come into the faith, right? And I'll t- so the, the title of the message is Breaking Bad. Uh, and, I'll t- and I'll tell you what it's about, right, in a second. Um, basically what happens is, is this. When we become Christians, uh, there's a shift in our essence, right? Like our allegiance becomes to King Jesus, our primary citizens, uh, citizenship becomes the kingdom of God above everything else, um, uh, and there's a new and, and that basically gets sparked by this new birth. The new birth is baptism; you receive the Holy Spirit. Our sins are forgiven. It's a massive es- a shift of essence, right? But then what happens is our origin story, right, uh, starts pushing back against our essence, and that's where most of the breakdown of faith happens. In that journey. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, I'll give you a couple of just very quick examples. Of, of, of that even outside the faith. Right. When you are. When you get married. And you. Uh, your spouse become pregnant. And then you have a baby. Right. You. Uh, who's a father. Uh, who's a father here. Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Let me get an amen. If, this is ac- if I get this accurately. Right. Uh, you are Fundamentally. Sort of, a, a, you know, you're a one person, then you become married, you're two become one, but that's, but then, and, and you're still fairly, a fairly selfless guy, like so guys are self, self selfish, rather, uh, just sort of essentially, fundamentally, right? Um, uh, m- mothers are sort of pre-wired to be nurturing for a reason. Guys, not so much, right? Not so much. But then your baby's born, and when your baby's born, there's an essential shift in you. You become a father. It's a tectonic shift. And you go from, I, you know, I complain when I have a headache, to I am willing to have sleepless nights for an extended period of time. I'm willing. I embrace it. I'm okay with it. I'm tired. I may be grumpy. But there's a fundamental change in you because you're a father now. And you're okay with that. Can I get an amen if that's true? Can I get not me if it's not true of you? I don't know. Eh, I don't know. But I want to present to you that that's actually a, a very primal thing. Something changes in you when you become a father. It's sort of the same thing. You become a Christian, something changes in you. Baptism is not just getting wet. Baptism, something magical, supernatural happens during baptism. You receive the Holy Spirit. You're empowered by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that, ro- that rose Jesus from the dead is in you, even allowing you to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you start sinning uh, after you become a Christian, it sort of ruins that for you because the Spirit won't let you sort of feel good about it. Sin is not jo- very enjoyable anymore. Right? Right? Something fundamental changes, but then, um, but then the sort of your 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 muscle memory, your origin story, your history, your culture, um, you can start seeing how things things like that are pushing back against your, your essence, who you actually are. Uh, in the Bible, there's a there's a there's a term for that. It's called generational sin right? You pass sin from generation to generation, not as a curse necessarily, but there's, a, but, but there's a, a, a way to see the world that is misaligned with God and it hurts generation after generation after generation. That's what we call today breaking bad, right? So I'm going to read to you a, how the apostle Paul describes it in his experience. And this is an interesting thing. Before Paul The Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, responsible for writing like a third of the New Testament. He was Saul, the Pharisee, with generational world views. He was the Jew among Jews. He describes himself in in a lot of detail, a lot of tradition. His way of of seeing righteousness, society, the Jewish faith, when the Messiah is going to come, how he's going to look and feel, was so ingrained in him. That he was actually a young man holding the clothing of the guys who were stoning Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. He was holding the, he was, he had every opportunity to follow Jesus. He was a contemporary of Jesus. So as a young man, he would have, he could have been John, right? The guy who was probably a teenager when he started following Jesus. So, and he didn't. As a matter of fact, after the resurrection, after the, the church was formed, he went on a crusade to, per, to persecute the church. He was absolutely convinced that the Jesus way was a, was a false teaching. And he was determined to crush it. And then he became Saul. Jesus visited him on a road to Damascus. You know, he was blinded. You know this is you, you. know you're 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 you are insistent in, in your bad when Jesus makes a personal visit to you, and blinds you, for several days, right? Like, you don't have to be a knucklehead of some sort, right? Um. So when he became Saul, that was the change of essence for him, and he started preaching the gospel in powerful ways, just remarkable ways, right? And he became the Paul from Saul to Paul, he became not only a Christian, he became an apostle. Generations and generations, 2,000 years later, we're still thinking about him, evaluating his words, looking at his example, seeing his character, his perseverance, his love, his sacrifice. I mean, it's transformative. But even him, this is what he writes in Romans 7, verses 22 and 23. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So he's, he's acknowledging as, a, as an apostle, as someone who's teaching, planting churches, leading people, he's saying, "Ah, oh, in my mind, I delight in the Lord. I, I, I believe in this stuff, right? And there's this, there's this corrosive pushback inside of me, this bad that is persistent, and it's just, it, it sort of messes with me, right? And what happens is this. So this is common. If this was common in, with Paul, this is common to me. This is common to you, right? Turn to the person next to you and say, this is you as well. Okay, there you go. So this is, but what happens is this. What happens is this. What happens is um, how you deal with that, with that almost like this fracture inside of you where the, the, in, the essence has changed, but your behavior, these patterns persist. We have a couple of things that, to not do, and I'll tell you what they are. One is this. We don't normalize worldly behavior. right? Because after a while, you sin, and you sin, and you sin, and you're, you're not, your outward behavior and how you start thinking is so abrasive to your Christian faith that eventually you go, well, you know, there's grace and you basically normalize worldly behavior. So don't do that. You see that in uh, top to bottom, left to right in, in Christian movements all over the world. You see pastors teaching for decades and then having, uh, having a double life after a while, right? So to you, I would say follow Jesus and then I would go home and behave differently. We, and we normalize that and we go, well, we're all broken. Even Paul had, you know, Normalize, don't normalize worldly behavior. That's not the right way to go. Does that make sense? Here's the other extreme on the other end that's also very unhealthy. You don't normalize this, this illusion of victorious Christian living, right? You can normalize this, Jesus is Lord, I'm happy. You put a face, you act, you, 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 you know the jargon, you know the behavior, and you basically create this double life for yourself, you know, and you're messing with your own journey, first of all, because you'll have a hypocritical lifestyle. You present the front of victorious Christian living. Nothing is ever wrong with you. You're not down. You don't have the struggles. Jesus is Lord. You're this religious person outwardly. Inwardly, this, this bad will, will persist. And that will kill you. That will kill your faith. And it will, mess, it will mess with the church. Because imagine if we're a group of people and we're all very victorious in our Jesus likeness. And there's this one person who's actually in touch with reality and go, what's wrong with me? Right? All these guys, I mean, I probably don't belong here. They're too, they're so, too, they're too holy for me. Well, guess what? They're hypocrites and you're just in touch. We don't want to be in that kind of community. So what we do in, in our sort of victorious Christian sort of imagery is we focus in very optimistic ways uh, without seeing sort of the, 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 the war, the struggle. In John 10.10, 10, we focus on, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full, right? We love that, that, that scripture, right? Why? It makes you feel good. It makes you feel good, that scripture, right? It's very American, very optimistic, it's very American to just take that scripture without the previous picture, the scripture in that same verse. And here's what it says. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I have counted th- so they may have life and have it to the full. See, that's a little bit more balanced, isn't it? What is it saying? It's saying that Jesus came to give you life and give it to the full, but there's a thief. And he's out there. There's an active spiritual force pushing against you from the inside every single day in your brain. And it's there for a purpose, a vengeful purpose, to come and kill and destroy and to steal from you the gifts that you have received. That is the reality of my life. That's the reality of every single life. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is you as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And it leads to religiosity, hypocrisy, churchianity, all of that stuff. So what I'm going to give you is sort of a little bit of a diagnosis, and you can extrapolate from that. So I'll give you, I'll give you some examples of how that plays out in the long run, and how, you, know, you, you, you want to be able to recognize those things, those patterns. You have seen the thief at his work when you read about the good father, but project an absent father. You can read about it, intellectually believe in it, but you project... The absent father that you had, for example, unavailable father, abusive father. And you project it, and it's this duality inside of you that you need to break, you need to break that bad. You, believe, you, 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 you see the thief at its work when you believe that in grace and you expre- experience intense shame all the time. When you exchange in your face idolatry, you know, I'm gonna go party all night and sleep around and get drunk like crazy, And you exchange that in your face, that more obvious idolatry, for a more nuanced idolatry, like porn addiction. Everybody does it. It's okay. It's not okay, never was okay, never will okay. It will destroy you. So you exchange one very obvious for something that is easily more hidden, and then you sort of live with that. That's the thief at his work, stealing from you, destroying you. You settle for life in the church without experiencing life in Christ. That's super, super common, right? Life in Christ, it's expansive. It's overflowing. It, it, it requires all, everything from you. Complete surrender, compliance of lifestyle, spiritual disciplines, all those things. And you are unwilling to do this, this spiritual, hard, painful, emotional work. So what you do is you exchange that for community. It becomes, the, the, the church becomes your idol. Why? People are kind. People are patient. People are like you. Right? But you, you forfeit your life in Christ. And you just replace it with the church. So you show up every Sunday. You go to a small group. You, you have friends. And that's, that is your Christianity. But it's not. It's so much, this, this is just one sliver of Christianity you can settle for me- mediocre romance to avoid, lo- to avoid loneliness and you don't experience the full giftedness of what it means to understand sexuality romantic relationships but understand romance a marriage that is like the union of, of christ and the church i mean the most beautiful analogy the closest things to thing to heaven is a, is a christian marriage you can abandon Christian conflict resolution to ease relational pain, right? You just haven't figured out how to, fi- how to resolve conflict. And Jesus tells you how to resolve conflict. The Bible teaches you how to resolve conflict. And you don't. And you do it just because you don't like the pain of relational strain. And then what happens is that that catches up with you eventually. As bitterness, unforgiveness, like bitter roots in, in biblical words, right? Right? You avoid painful growth opportunities to ease anxiety, right? You can lean into the pain, into the strain, and find Jesus and the spirit and the church and discipleship to carry you through to the other side, and you grow. But you don't lean into the pain because you want to ease that anxiety. And you rob yourself over over a more expansive life, life. In existence. So this is just a few examples, but you can extrapolate. You can probably come up with probably a, a similar list, right? That I haven't even mentioned, but to give you that idea in Deuteronomy five, nine to 10, there's a scary, scary scripture. And it says this, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. This is talking about idolatry for I, the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That is a scary, scary scripture in the Old Testament, and it talks about generational sin, right? And, you know, you might go, wow, that's a little harsh. I mean, why, why do I have to pay for the sins of my father? It doesn't make any sense. And I think the, 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 the wording here really clearly says that it's not just this random sort of, okay, your father was you know, whatever, drank too much, and you're going to pay regardless. That's not the point. I think the point is patterns of behavior. The point is the father will teach you certain things that are going to be hard for you to overcome, and you have to break that bat. Does that make sense? So the pattern is very clear here, I think, even from context, that that sin passes from generation to generation to generation, right? And also the other thing is that he's, you see that you see the ratio, right? Four generations versus a thousand generations. The analogy, the poetry of that. Basically saying, look, three or four generations can be, can be cursed by this, this incredible, debilitating worldview. But if you shift, if you repent, and you pass it on to the next generation, it could be a thousand generations. So you, you, see the, you see the wrath versus grace and, and blessing, ratio here right it's amazing how the imagery communicates that uh dev and i as you as you know you know we're in ukraine for a couple of weeks and uh on um i was invited on this talk show on tv there uh, i have a friend who's a journalist who's like hey come on you know we'll talk about the world like, oh, i don't know if i want to do that and uh so i went and uh, in, and it's one of the things one of the things that i talked to, to him about because he you know he's a he's a commentator so it's obviously the russia ukraine conflict is a massive thing and uh you know, as a Christian, I came on and I said, I, I think, he goes, so what do you make of this, right? You know, he sets it up as a prof- the professional that he is. What do you make of this? And I said, look, I, what I make of this, that it's not about Russia, it's not about Ukraine, it's about a clash of worldviews." You know, I, I basically said, Russia, I believe, and this is not, it's a blanket statement, but it's almost like a, there's a critical mass of people thinking a certain way, right? That's what I mean. It's very much a, an Asian country where people think the Tsar, the king, the emperor, is responsible for their well-being. And whatever the Tsar thinks is right, should be right. He knows, he knows better. That's essentially the generational curse. Right? People think, okay, the Tsar is better. Well, Tsars are, to every ten Tsars, one is good. Every, the, all the other ones are corrupt and evil, and aggressive, and egomaniacs, and insecure men. So, then the nation harvests, what, generation curse, generational sin. And I said to him, I think, you know, the Russian culture, historically, it's it's nobody's fault, chooses somebody like a Putin. It's a collective Putin. Does that make sense? It's It's not the fault of one guy. Every nation deserves their leaders. And by by the way, every church deserves their their leaders, for better or for worse, right? Uh, So it's a collective Putin on this side, and I said, Ukrainians, just culturally, naturally, are rebellious, fragmented, freedom-loving people. And they just don't like when somebody tells them, you belong to me, you know? So I sort of described that, and he was like, oh, that's an interesting view. But I was talking about a biblical concept there right? It's the Jesus in my heart. Both nations actually claim to be Christian, Eastern Christians. Jesus in my heart, grandpa in my bones, right? That's, I think Elias came up with that. He probably stole it from somewhere, right? Yeah. But I learned it from Elias. Like, Jesus in my heart, grandpa in my bones. It's inherited. And we replicate our fathers, our grandfathers, our grandfathers, without even knowing where that comes from. We just do things, see things a certain way. Does that make sense? Uh, are we, on the way back, we're, um, and it's in the bad, and it's also in the good. On the way back, we were, Deb and I um, came through uh, Hungary. So we're in Budapest for a few days, just decompressing, right? And in Budapest, I have a, a childhood friend. His name is Gabor Rona. He's Ukra- uh, Hungarian and he's Jewish, right? And we grew up in Africa together. So, uh, you know, you, I'll let you piece that together in your imagination. So, Gabor is an old friend, shelter friend, and he and Mar- uh, his wife, Marta, took us to the city, through the city, and showed us around, took us to Vienna. Apparently, from, from Budapest to Vienna is like from Austin to um, Houston. That's how close they are. It's really cool. Anyway, um, so he's walking to, through, uh, with us through the Jewish quarters of, of Budapest. And he goes, and he took us to the great synagogue, this amazing, beautiful building, and he says, these were traditionally the Jewish quarters uh, where the Jews you know, lived and worked and everything for a long time, but then it became a ghetto when the, when the Nazis took over. So they, they closed them down there and they deprived them and then they shipped them off to, um, his, his, his grandmother was in Auschwitz and survived. So many, many, many uh, people didn't make it in his family. But he was, what he was telling me is a very interesting, he goes, you know, they came here, the Jews came here, actually relatively not long, maybe 100 years, something like that, um, from Eastern Europe to Hungary. They migrated because of, they were persecuted. And he goes, they would come here and settle here and they were poor, very, very poor. And in one generation, they were the city's lawyers and doctors and intellectuals and philosophers and professors. Because their tradition valued education and bettering yourself. So the grandpa in my bones can be a good thing. Right? They, were like, they succeeded. Every, as a matter of fact, part of the reason why the Jews were persecuted all over the world is because they succeeded all over the world. So people are jealous. And, you know, they go, how come you're doing better than me? You're an outsider. Dress weird. And you're still successful. What's up with that? That's essentially what it is. It's generational Stuff. So back to uh, us, you and I, right? Um, For example, I grew up, um, and there's a good grandpa in my bones. For example, my my grandpa and my and my father, and my mom and dad, they were very cause-driven people, like they lived for causes, and they were very sacrificial and very focused. So to me, as a Christian, when when causes became sort of a thing, you know, when you live for the kingdom of God, that shift was easy for me. Because it was in my bones. I was like, that makes sense. On the other hand, I come from three generations of broken homes. Where there was no marital success whatsoever to compare with. That was much harder for me. I had generational sin that was like that, right? So when, you, when I became a Christian, uh, there was an, a shift in essence. I became a new creation. My sins were forgiven. I became a Christian. Jesus is Lord. The kingdom is my home. The church is my family right? And with that came a new set of sort of relational things that are essential. Okay, I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to have sex before marriage. I'm going to date a Christian. I'm going to marry a godly wife. Those were set right away. But then there's all these sub-questions that come with those, right? Okay, how do I, you know, who, who am I looking for? Where do I date? How do I date? How do I know it's the right person? Now, my, my essence has shifted. I know if I marry, I marry forever. How do I do that? After I become married, how, how, how do I stay married? That's a nice question. Right? Okay, now you add kids to the, to the picture. How, do you, how does that, my essence as a Christian project into all of that chain of events, all of those things, and change my behavior, change me from the inside out, all the way to parenting and the next generation, so that it's a generation blessing? Does that make sense? So this is just one strand of Breaking Bad, right? One strand of Breaking Bad. But we have so many others. Meaning, work, community, success, money, status, uh, compassion. How do I treat politics? How do I find friends? How do I keep friends? I mean, the, the, the full spectrum of the human experience there's an essence that shifts when you become a christian and there's the there's the breaking bad which is sort of the, the rest of the journey right and every single one of us have has something in that that we're trying to break can i get an amen if that's true the good news is this second corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 for though we live in the world we do not wage war as the world does the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they, are divine, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is a powerful, powerful scripture that I want to really sort of land on before we take communion here. Because the essence, the, the shift in essence is... I wouldn't say the easier part, but this is God's part. This is essential. This is, this is amazing and wonderful. If you are seeking to be a Christian, all you have to do to change your essence is acknowledge that you are a person who has fallen, a person who needs forgiveness, acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to get a class for that. You can get baptized after, after this. We say a prayer together, we acknowledge those things, we go to the river, and get baptized. Who wants to do it? (laughs) But really, but really, that's how it is. There's not much on your part, and you will be a new creation. That's amazing, right? But then breaking bad, breaking bad is the rest of the journey. (laughs) And how are you going to do that? So here's how you do that. So I'll, I'll just sort of unpack this, this message for you. And I want you to really think about how, how does that apply to you? What is it that you need? What is it that you can take this from here, the weapons that you need to break bad, that apply directly to you? What's, what's the most needed thing in your life right now? Okay, first of all, engage w- weapons of, of divine power. Spiritual disciplines are your weapons. Spiritual disciplines like prayer, fasting, Sabbathing, confession, discipleship. All of those things are things that are developed and nurtured over a long period of time. These are your spiritual weapons. Do you want to break bad? You need spiritual of divine power. Weapons of divine power. That's what you need. Are you willing to acquire those weapons, right? You know, even in video games, you have to work for the weapons. Have you noticed? Right? You, you don't, they don't just give you everything right away. You have to work for it. Unlock weapon this, unlock weapon that. It's the same way. It's the same thing. It, it requires an effort. It requires time. It requires attention. It requires work. And if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. So all you have the bandwidth for is a Sunday service, maybe a small group meeting. And then you're surprised when bad doesn't break. Guess what? You don't have the weapons. Here's the second one identify strongholds to demolish. It says, We demolish strongholds. What are your strongholds? I mean, make a list. Meditate on this thing. What are the things that just don't come naturally to you? That you go, Okay, grandpa in my bones is just wrecking this, I'm uh, losing my patience in my workspace. I idolize my work, and I'm distracted. I work so much, my friends don't feel me that I'm present with them. My wife doesn't feel that I'm there. My brain is, my mind is somewhere else. I'm physically there, my mind is something else. Whenever I get an extra day or two, or, you know, hour or two, some here and there, I'll, I'll, what, what will I choose to do? If it's work, work might be your idol you're compensating for something. Success might be your idol, right? When you're, you wanna be successful so bad that every waking hour, every, the most creative work, uh, 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 brain power that you use, use for that, right? You have to break that bad. It's not gonna make you happy. I have not, I've never seen, I've been a successful guy before in, in certain areas. Maybe I am in other areas now. I've never seen somebody in the, with worldly success to whom that success is enough, ever. Can be rich enough, famous enough, respected enough, ever, if that's your thing. Right? What is your stronghold? Can you be honest about this? If you have, if, let me give you a hint. I, I have demolished a good list of strongholds in 25 years as a Christian. I, have, I still have strongholds. You take one at a time and demolish them. What is your next one? You might have a very good list of demolished strongholds. What's the one you're fighting on now? Working on now, right? Okay, identity strongholds to demolish. Identify strongholds to demolish. Learn to demolish arguments. How do you demolish arguments? Biblical literacy. The only way for you to demolish, not somebody else's arguments, your arguments. Here. Here. The dialogue you're having here, the self-talk that keeps you ashamed, that keeps you unhappy, that keeps you angry, that keeps you lusting, that keeps you unsatisfied, that keeps you under the thumb of the, th- of the thief, right? How do you demolish that? You meditate on scripture, how do you meditate on scripture? You read scripture. You learn scripture. Right? You unpack scripture. You, you taste scripture. That's how you demolish it. What does that take f- from you? Time, effort, energy, passion. Right? Learn to demolish arguments. Your own arguments, first, first of all. Right? And then the last one is capture and submit your thinking and make it obedient for, to Christ. How do you get a thought? Who here wakes up with depressive thoughts? Anxiety, right? I do it all the time. One thing, like for example, one thing that I've learned is there's no, there are no horizontal solutions to horizontal problems, only vertical solutions. Physically, meaning if I'm thinking around and my, my brain is going in the first thing in the morning, I lack this, I lack this, I lack this, if only this, if only that, if only this. And I I can see I'm cycling through that, right? It's like this cycle. What do I do? Get up. Make yourself vertical. And then make yourself vertical in your heart. Grab a cup of coffee. Go outside. Sit down. Worship God. Say a prayer. Read some scriptures. Like that. Five minutes. On demand. You capture a thought. And you submit it to Jesus. On demand. Do you know how powerful that is? Do you know how few people have that kind of power over their own thoughts? Very few. Imagine if that's what, what you do consistently for years. Imagine decades. What is that going to do to your life? You're going to break a lot of bad. I'll tell you. And here's my motivation. My two motivations. Two motivations. Num- Number one, I want, if Jesus came to give me life to the full, I want it. I want that life. If he came, the, one who, the author of life, the one who was resurrected from the dead, who died for me on the cross, if he came to give me life to the full, I want that life. I believe I can have it. I believe he can give it to me. And I will not settle for anything that is not that. And my question to you is, will you settle before you get that life that was promised to you, that is guaranteed to you by the power of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb, will you settle for mediocre religious churchianity? And why? Why on earth would you do that? What what a miserable, miserable way to live. And I don't want to settle ever. I want that life now. And here's my second one. is the first one is not conv- convincing enough, because that will require for you to break a lot of bad and lean into a lot of pain. Here's the second: I do not want my kids to inherit my sin. And if of taking my, take care of myself is not enough, I will do it for my kids, for goodness sake. I will do it for my children. I want my children to inherit blessings, generational blessings. I want the thousand generations for my family. I want my thousand generations for my friends' kids. Right? When we were in Kiev, we spent some time. My father in the faith, his name is Andy Fleming. He spoke here a a few months ago. His daughter is in Kiev. He's married, has a kid. And I just love speaking to her as a grown-up with her husband and seeing the inheritance. Like, what an amazing woman, godly woman she is. I didn't have that growing up. I didn't have that inheritance. And now, you know, I have my kids, all of my kids are out of the house, and I just delight in spending time with them because they're so much better equipped for life than I was. So much. I just sit down with them and their honesty, their authenticity, their, their thinking, their maturity, their decision-making. And yes, they will mess up. Yes, they will. Okay? But oh my gosh. They have an inheritance. They have generational blessings. And it's a beauty to behold. The scripture actually says something about this in Psalm 145 verses 4 to 6. And we'll say a prayer after this. Let each generation tell his children of your mighty acts. Let him proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Okay, if not having a full life is not enough motivation for us, how motivating it is to know this? that we can tell about the glories of God to our children, and their children, and their children. Yesterday we had a goodbye party for the Deloas, and you just look at that little tribe of kids, you know, and you go, wow, that's right there. That's the promise. That's the promise. They will grow up, if we do this well as a community. If we're not afraid to fight the good fight, if we don't settle for churchianity, those children will carry this to their children and to their children and to their children. And I can tell you this, this is primal for a parent. If I think of it that way, I will do everything I can, everything in my powers, everything in my energy, and my time, to have a tribe of kids who inherit the kingdom, truly, truly carrying the kingdom. And we have an opportunity right here. It's a small little we're a speck of sand in the kingdom of God. But it's a beautiful speck of sand. It's a beautiful speck of sand. And these children will have a life that is way beyond what, the life that we even dreamt of when we were growing up. And that's worth fighting for. Let's pray.